Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, we're going to explore a theory that we all hope is true, that Omicron, far from being the source of more death and lockdowns, is actually a pathway out of the pandemic. We're going to learn more about how pandemics in the past have ended and what factors this new variant would need to have in order for that to happen in the case of the pandemic that we're still living two years since it started. It's not that the virus itself becomes more mild, it's just that we as a population become better able to fight it and deal with it because we have natural immunity. Could Omicron end the pandemic? We explore that question with an infectious disease scientist from the Kirby Institute right after today's headlines. It is Thursday, the 2nd of December. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Jan Fran for today's headlines. Good morning, Tom. Yeah, the great resignation. It's hit Australia, maybe not in the way that we thought it might. (laughs) It's hit Australian federal politics. That's right, Christian Porter, uh, the former Attorney General, has announced that he is leaving federal politics at next year's election. The West Australian MP made the announcement on Facebook yesterday saying he'd experienced the harshness of politics more than most and wanted to spend time with his family who'd supported him unconditionally. Yeah, now what he's referring to when he says that was the controversy that saw him step down from Cabinet. Um, It started in February when the ABC reported that the AFP had been informed of a historic rape allegation against a Cabinet minister. Uh, Porter then himself revealed that the allegations were against him. However, he's strenuously denied them. Uh, He stepped down as Attorney General and then later had to step down from Cabinet altogether after it was revealed that he used a blind trust to fund a defamation case against the ABC, which he settled. And, of course, he's not revealed who any of those donors into that $1 million blind trust were. And the other big resignation, and this one's expected to be announced today, is the Health Minister, Greg Hunt, which is a very big one in the middle of a pandemic. News Corp and the nine newspapers are reporting that the Health Minister will use the last sitting day of Parliament, which is today, to announce that he won't be contesting uh, his seat at the next poll. Yeah, it's a bit of a challenge for Scott Morrison because there are nine other coalition MPs calling it quits as well. And the first survivor to take the stand in the Ghislaine Maxwell sex trafficking trial has testified that Maxwell introduced her to Donald Trump when she was 14 and also claimed that she was on a flight with Prince Andrew. Yeah, so the woman referred to in court by the pseudonym Jane says that she was taken by Jeffrey Epstein to Mar-a-Lago, which of course is Donald Trump's Florida residence when she was 14 years old. That's where she met the former US president. It is worth noting though she has not accused him nor Prince Andrew of any misconduct. She's named some big names, though, there. Indeed, she has. She also uh, gave evidence that she had sexual contact with Jeffrey Epstein when she was 14 years old and that Ghislaine Maxwell was frequently in the room when that abuse happened. So that testimony comes after Jeffrey Epstein's former pilot, uh, Lawrence Paul Vosofsky, Jr., told the court Miss Maxwell was the number two in Epstein's hierarchy. Uh, Maxwell's facing charges of sex trafficking, She's accused of recruiting and grooming girls for her former boss and partner, Jeffrey Epstein, to abuse. She's pleaded not guilty to all counts, but she faces up to 80 years in prison if convicted on all of these counts. So it's an amazingly interesting court case that's unfolding now, and it's not just about where Maxwell ends up. It's about all these other people that might get implicated in the process. Indeed, you've already heard some big names and uh, in the next few weeks as the trial unfolds, no doubt we'll hear some more big names being thrown around. 
A man has drowned after his car was swept off a road during a major flood in southeast Queensland. Yeah, police say that two vehicles were swept off the road near Toowoomba yesterday morning with the driver of one able to escape, but sadly the body of another driver located just yesterday afternoon. Southeast Queensland remains on flood alert after rising waters forced more than a thousand people to flee their homes in two towns close to the New South Wales border. And flood warnings are still in place for several catchments uh, in New South Wales with concerns of more rain today, which could cause river levels to rise further. And yeah, we got the very obvious news that it's been a wet November in New South Wales. It's the coolest and wettest November ever, according to the bomb. And the number of countries with Omicron cases has grown to 23 overnight, and with the Scottish government revealing nine cases of the variant uh, linked to a private event that happened on November 20. So that's before South Africa announced the first Omicron case on November 24. So it keeps raising this question, how much was it circulating in other countries before we found out about it in Africa? which raises the bigger question, did it really start in Africa? That is the question. Health authorities have said that none of the people attending the event had travelled recently to southern Africa, so there's that, and they said that they didn't have any links with anyone who'd been there. In Australia, we've gone to seven cases after another one was found in New South Wales. Here's the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet saying we can't hide from it. We're getting asked questions here about six cases. Six cases. No one's asking about hospitalisations. No one's asking about ICU presentations or deaths. Let's shift the thinking. Yeah, Don Perrottet there. Um, And there is probably a good reason for him to want to shift that thinking because when you look at hospitalisations, in New South Wales, they've fallen from a high of 1,200 in September to just 154 yesterday, which shows obviously that the big thing that's happened between then and now is vaccination. So they seem to be having a real effect and that's what the Premier wants to focus on. Same with ICU cases. They've gone from 242 in September to just 25 yesterday. Uh, Now, the latest case of Omicron is a person who last week returned from six months in Africa. Um, He had visited some shops in Sydney before testing positive. Um, And as we told you, that brings Australia's total to seven. Six in New South Wales, one in the NT. And the great escape from Howard Springs that didn't last too long. Uh, The Northern Territory Police quickly caught three teenagers who escaped from Howard Springs quarantine. Uh, The 15, 16 and 17-year-olds from the Binjari Aboriginal community jumped the fence about 4.40am yesterday morning and they were found by midday. Yeah, now thankfully um, it's been deemed that they were unlikely to have come into contact with the community. They have been tested again and they are COVID negative anyway, so there's some good news there. Uh, the NT Chief Minister, Michael Gunner, though, said that the Howard Springs facility was currently dealing with what he called a complex cohort of people with diverse needs. Quarantine is obviously an isolating experience, and that is pretty hard for some people who are used to being close to family and community. The Centre for National Resilience is not a prison, but it isn't a playground either. Yeah, so what he's talking about is you've got people from remote Indigenous communities where they've had outbreaks and then return travellers from overseas or interstate, um, including that one case of Omicron, um, which came in on Monday. So a bit of an interesting scene at Howard Springs at the moment. Clearly those boys <laughs> weren't too happy to be there. No, well, I don't think anyone's particularly happy to be at Howard Springs, but it's probably good to, yeah, it's, it's better to be safe than sorry, as they say. Stick out the quarantine period if you can. All right, Jam, we'll catch you for tomorrow's headlines. Katrina Blouse is about to jump in as we explore the theory that we all want to be true. 
All right, now to our briefing on Omicron and whether it could end the pandemic theory we're going to explore in detail. Around the world, a number of well-regarded experts have pointed to the fact that at this extremely early stage, symptoms of the new variant have been mild and it's spreading quickly. Now, Katrina Blouse, as we're about to hear, those are the factors that may determine the future of the pandemic. Yes, indeed. Now, Dr. Deborah Cromer is at the coal face of this modelling that's going to look at how effective our current vaccines are against this new variant. She heads up the Infection Epidemiology and Policy Analytics Group at the Kirby Institute at the Uni of New South Wales. Now, Deborah, thanks for joining us. We all obviously would love this theory to be true. Before you comment on the likelihood that it is true, how could that happen? How could Omicron be the pathway out of the pandemic? Well, I guess the thing that people are thinking about is that if Omicron is sort of more mild, then maybe it would be great if a more mild virus could take over. Like if you could get a a very mild virus that was highly transmissible, so it would transmit to a lot of people, then if that were the case, then that would be great for people because if you could get everyone infected with a very, very mild version of the virus, essentially that's kind of what vaccination does, right? It gives people a something that the body recognises the virus, but that doesn't cause symptoms. So if we're going to get a very mild symptom, then essentially the idea would be that it would be like vaccinating the entire population wow. through natural infection. We're all just clinging to some hope here. Professor Robert Boy from the Immunisation Coalition is one of the infectious disease experts who has gone on record saying that pandemic viruses mutate and evolve naturally over time and become low level and milder as they become more able to spread. It's, I guess, in the virus's best interest to do that. And he also said that we have coronaviruses now which cause really mild symptoms that once upon a time, hundreds of years ago, caused pandemic. Pandemics. Could this be the future? The reason that a virus would mutate and evolve is to do with evolution. So a virus really doesn't care about whether or not it makes a person sick. It doesn't care about whether they have mild symptoms or whether they end up in hospital. What it cares about is replicating and making as many more copies of itself as it possibly can in the future. The reason a virus would mutate would be to make it more transmissible so it can get from one person to another person faster because that means that over time it will create more copies of itself or it would mutate to avoid any immune responses that already existed in the population. So that might be immune responses that were a result of natural infection or it might be immune responses that were present because of vaccination that had happened in the population or it might be to do with other immunity that was just naturally present due to other coronaviruses that had been there. So that's the reasons that virus would mutate. The reason that we would think that they might become milder is because in the same way that a virus wants to replicate, it doesn't suit the virus if the person it infects dies or goes to hospital because if you're in hospital, you're not mixing with a lot of other people (laughs) and therefore you're not giving the virus much opportunity to spread itself. If you're dead, certainly you're not. So the reason that a virus would want to maintain a lower level is because it's not in the virus's interest to kill the host or to, to make it so sick that it can't mix and spread with other people. The current 
coronavirus that induces COVID-19, it is in many, many, many people, most people, it's a fairly mild disease. So part of the reason for that is that over time, people acquire immunity against these viruses. So it's not that the virus itself becomes more mild. It's just that we as a population become better able to fight it and deal with it because we have natural immunity. We pass that natural immunity on to our children through maternal immunity. So historically, what's been the main way out of a pandemic? Is it, as you were just saying, humans gaining greater immunity or is it about the viruses being less harmful, a bit of both, or are there other reasons that end pandemics? I think it's pretty much the first one, that it's about people developing immunity. So we've all heard of the 1918 flu pandemic. There have been other pandemics since then as well that weren't as as widespread throughout the world, but there have been pandemics that existed. Basically, let's take the 1918 flu pandemic. That was a new strain of flu that evolved from animals and it entered the human population. And when it entered, no one had any immunity to it. And so it was terrible. It um, you know, made people very sick, killed people of all ages. But over years, everyone got exposed to that flu and either got very, very sick from it and didn't survive or did survive and those that survived had immunity. And now we all get a very similar strain of that flu uh, when well, it's likely that we'll get one each year because it's just part of the normal flu. But it doesn't make us so sick because we all are born with and continue to acquire um, natural immunity to the infection over time. Okay, but those two things are linked, aren't they? Because if the variant is more mild, that allows more of us to get the disease without dying and therefore survive and build up immunity. So the two kind of come together, don't they? They could come together. I mean, they would come together in a really, really severe infection that killed a large proportion of the people. COVID-19 isn't terrible, but it's the percentage of people who die is quite small. So it's maybe 1%. Now, 1% of the world population is enormous and, and terrible. And I definitely believe that all the measures we're taking are appropriate. So I'm in no way trying to downplay the potential severity of COVID-19. But on the other hand, from a viral fitness point of view, that still leaves it with 99% of the population it can spread through, which is pretty good from its point of view. So this theory about Omicron potentially being the pathway out of the pandemic, what factors would need to be true about this variant for that to happen? It would need to be more mild. And it would need to be a lot more transmissible. If we did want to spread it to everyone, it would need to in some way avoid immune responses that were already there. I guess that's what we would need. It would need to be much more mild and much more transmissible. And I guess we would have to hope that it then didn't mutate into an even more transmissible, more virulent form. And is part of that increased transmissibility about displacing the previous variants or does that That's not really exactly matter? That's right. right. That's why we'd need it to be um, more transmissible. So we would need to essentially, you already have a bunch of Delta in the population. So if Omicron gets introduced, then in order for it to take over from Delta, it needs to be more fit is what we call it. But that is means also part of that fitness is how well it can transmit to another person. In order to take over from Delta, that's what you would need. So what do we know about the transmissibility of it and how mild or, or not mild it is so far? We do know that in parts of Southern Africa, it does seem to have displaced Delta. The majority now, I think, of the cases are the Omicron variant. 
given that, we can probably infer in a predominantly unvaccinated population, but where there are relatively high levels of natural immunity, because a lot of people have had the disease naturally, it appears to be more fit than Delta, so it will outcompete Delta. So I think that we at least know that in a primarily unvaccinated population, it will outcompete Delta, so it is probably more transmissible. One of the things that I guess is still so up in the air is how our current vaccines are going to respond to this new variant. You uh, do mathematical modelling as part of your work. Have you run the numbers yet? We'd love to run the numbers. The thing (laughs) is that before we can do that, there needs to be some laboratory tests that test essentially how much immunity, serum or, or blood from people who've either had natural infection or been vaccinated have against the new variant. So, There are some tests that are run by scientists in labs that can test how much immunity is present already in the serum. And once those tests are run, and they take around about two weeks, we then can use a model that we've developed to tell exactly what the effectiveness of the vaccines in a whole population is going to be. So we can sort of plug those numbers into our model and that's not going to take a long time because that's all done by computer. So I guess in in two weeks and one day, we'll be able to know that answer. A lot of people in Australia are eligible for booster shots. Should they still get it, not knowing whether or not these vaccines are going to cover them for this new strain? Unequivocally, they should. The vaccines that we've got, they induce general immunity. They were developed against the original strain of the virus, but we can see in Australia, they work extremely well against Delta. I mean, we've gone from thousands of cases a day to, you know, one or 200 cases a day simply by vaccinating the vast majority of the population. So they really do work. And remember, Delta is a variant just like Omicron. And when Delta emerged, we would have had the same sort of paucity of information about Delta that we now have about Omicron. So for sure, booster shots are important. For sure, people should go and get them because what they do is they just increase the level of immunity that is present in the blood or in the serum, like what I said. So they they boost those levels up super high and it essentially means that it's like giving the body the arsenal to deal with whatever it sees. It's like I've got so much immunity, I can just fight against whatever variant I'm going to encounter. Certainly maybe I can fight some variants better than others, but you know, that immunity will then drop off over time. And so the original immunity people have from their vaccination will already have dropped off. And we need to just boost that up to give the body the best chance of fighting against whatever variant it encounters. And obviously we hope, and there may be Omicron-specific vaccines coming out, but we may not need them. Delta's been around for six months and we still don't have a Delta-specific vaccine. So there's no guarantee that there'll be an Omicron-specific vaccine and there certainly won't be one next week. So hmm. I definitely think people should vaccinate. Right. So you're going to have some great data within just two weeks about the effectiveness of the current vaccines. A couple of weeks, yeah. That's, wow. that's what that, Well, that's what, that's what we're hoping for, all things going right and all the lab tests um, coming out as planned. Just one last simple question. How worried are you about Omicron? Mm, I'm not particularly worried at the moment. Right now we have very little information. And so I am a believer in let's not worry about things until we know that they're a problem. Let's be (laughs) concerned and cautious um, and and take the appropriate measures, which I think is what everyone is doing and scientists are doing the world over. But until we know it's a huge problem, 
let's just put the right measures in place and they, they are being put in place, restrictions. And I think that's very, very sensible. We need, okay. we need to be cautious, but so, we don't need to be panicked. That's exactly the same reaction Katrina and I had, but we didn't have any real scientific knowledge no. behind it. And you do, <laughs> so that's great. That was Dr. Deborah Cromer from the Kirby Institute. She was really great to listen to, Katrina. And yeah. I think one thing she brought home to me was if, if you're looking at how the pandemic ends, there's sort of, well, there's one main way, actually. We build up immunity to it as human beings. Yes. And there's two ways of getting there. One is through a vaccine, which is the safer way of doing it. And the other is through actually getting the virus. And it just brings home how important it is to get the vaccine because otherwise you're eventually going to have to roll the dice against the virus itself. Yeah, which it's been shown has, um, you've got a risk of having way more severe symptoms from getting that virus than you do from getting a vaccine. Mm. And it'll be great to see her modelling in two weeks about the vaccine and how effective it will be against the new variant. And I think by then we'll know a lot more about those other two key factors, how fast it's spreading and how mild or not mild the symptoms of it are. Oh, let's hope it's a good Christmas present for (laughs) all of us. (laughs) Just in time for Christmas, you're right. Yes! Tomorrow on The Briefing, the full story from the Ghislaine Maxwell trial in New York. Listener.